Some time ago, um, Justin called and asked me if I would preach. And immediately in my heart, I thought, yeah, I've got a sermon to preach. I've been working on something. This would be great. And he said, now, wait a minute. 2 Samuel 24, <laughs> the pestilence passage. And it's like, oh, what do you say? What do you, I mean, oh, my word. And then I met with Ryan this past Tuesday and uh, going over the sermon. And he, he looked at me and said, now, remember, Jim, you're the closure. You got to bring this whole thing together. And all of a sudden, this weight just kind of descended on me. And... Uh, Okay, and, but I, you know, I want to be honest with you. As I was studying the passage this week, God began to show me just gospel connections all over the place in, in 2 Samuel 24. And I'm an ADHD, which means, you know, I've got a pace and, and that type of thing. And then I'm getting excited about what I see. And I'm walking around my kitchen and my dining room. And I'm talking out loud to God. And I'm seeing the connection. So I'm thankful for 2 Samuel 24. I truly am. And uh, we don't have PowerPoint, so we're going to do this old school. So if you'd open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 24, uh, I'd appreciate if you would do that. And uh, you may want to take out a pen because there's some connections that we're going to make here in this, uh, in this text that really, I, I think, is going to uh, encourage us this morning. I know my heart's truly encouraged. Um, let, let, let's just pray together again, can we? Father, Lord, it's not that we need Jesus. It's that Jesus is all that we have. So I pray for um, your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and soft hearts. Lord, your word, which was private in your own thoughts, has now been made public. And what a joy and a privilege we have not just to read, but to be able to, to study the word of God. Help us to take, put a desire in our heart um, to love your word. And it's in your name I pray, amen. You know, we all love stories that end with a happily ever after ending, do we not? We grew up with stories like Cinderella, Jack and the Beanstalk, uh, Hansel and Gretel. Those stories moved into other stories. Some of you already are beginning to watch the Hallmark movies, which have a monopoly on happily ever after, right? We, we know what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, the guy gets the girl and they kiss at the end. And, and that's basically... That's basically the, 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 the whole plot, right? Uh, the Christmas Carol, Scrooge, It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart. The Jason Bourne movies, we like those, the Happily Ever After. Some of you ladies really like Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. I remember my wife, she, she would say, Jim, please watch Pride and Prejudice, please, please. And so I sat down and I watched it. And, uh, you know, I, I like the plot, strong characters and all that, but the plot moves at about this pace. <laughs> And it's like watching paint dry. It's like it was a killer. It's like, okay, I've watched it one time. And, you know, the Marvel movies, Spider-Man, Hulk, um, Captain America, we, we like those types of happy ending stories. Chronicles of Narnia, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe were introduced to the White Witch, the Queen of Narnia, making it forever winter without Christmas. And then we're introduced to Aslan, the talking lion, the king of the beast, the, 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 the one who's the creator, the redeemer the rightful king who epitomizes goodness and justice. And after a period of time he re of absence, he returns to Narnia. And yet the next thing we know, there's this private conversation between the queen and Aslan. And Aslan is on a cold slab stone and dies, is killed by the queen. I, I never read the book. And so I'm watching the movie and it's like, no way. Now, if, if, if you remember the movie, or the, the stone slab cracks. If you're watching the movie, the music comes in. The music's always the indicator of what's going to happen, right? I mean, it always is. And then there's a happily ever after ending. You know, while the themes and the worlds of these stories mentioned were different, what was consistent were the endings. No matter how dark or tragic these stories become, the end result of is relatively the same for the lead characters, a happily ever after ending. <clears throat> and we enjoy those types of stories, do we not? Um, why? Well, because we're hardwired towards joy. It's something that God has built into us. We don't like tension. We don't like tension without resolution. 
And so when a movie or a book ends where there's a huge dark twist at the end and we've read some of those and we've watched some of those, it bothers us because we experience an unsettledness. And then we make statements like stupid movie, stupid book, I'm gonna call the networks. Who would ever end a story like this? Why? Because we want resolution. Bump, bum, bump. Right? We want resolution. And so when we come to our text this morning in 2 Samuel 24, we read it and we're left conflicted and feeling unsettled and question marks are all over the place. And it's easy to read uh, chapter 24 and feel this this terrible and horrible, this is a horrible way to end the book of Samuel. I mean, why couldn't it end on chapters 22 and 23 that Justin preached last week? 22 talks about the sovereignty and God is powerful and magnanimous and glorious and the deliverer and the rock and the fortress. And then it moves into that second poem, uh, verses 1 through 7, and the Davidic covenant. And we have the powerful God protecting the Davidic covenant. And out of him, it's going to come the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Why not end the book there? Perfect, but no. Come to chapter 24, Israel's sinning, David's sinning, God's bringing judgment, 70,000 people are dead, there's, orphan, there's, there's widows, there's children left fatherless, and we look at it, and it's not really a happy ending. So how, how do you preach it? I mean, what do you do with chapter 24? The temptation is to just deal with 24, uh, apart from the material that's preceded itself, and we can do that, and a lot of preachers do that. But if we do that, we're going to miss some gospel fingerprints that are all over this text. If we do that, we'll miss the hope, the anticipated reality that it offers us this morning as we live in sin-cursed bodies and sin-cursed relationships in a sin-cursed world. We need hope this morning. No one came in this morning saying, boy, I hope the preacher preaches something that discourages me. I hope Ryan has songs that just kind of, just kind of weigh my soul. To, no, why? Because we want our souls to be refreshed daily, according to Second. Corinthians 4 16 and each one of us is in a story this morning it's a story filled with joy and happiness and sin and regrets and unfulfilled expectations and hurts and woundedness death disease destruction if we're honest with ourselves if I'm honest with myself my life is very similar to Dave David's (laughs) I mean, I've not committed adultery and I've not killed anyone, but the ins and the outs of of having a hard heart and sin and rebellion and then confession and softness and repentance. and, and, And I mean, that's my life. And to be honest with you, one of my, one of the idols of my heart is pride because I think I'm something. I really do. And to be honest with you, there's times when I know that I need to confess sin and I just will not confess. There's that kicking against the gold and my flesh rears its ugly head. No! It's just me. We long for a happily ever after story in our lives, do we not? In our marriages? No, I, I had a good marriage. My wife is been home in heaven for five years i have a, i had a good marriage but i had a hard marriage man we worked at it we worked at it it was hard communication is hard it's hard you know I, i'm reminded of <clears throat> gamgee in the lord of the rings and he's talking to frodo and he says this he says it's like the great stories mr frodo the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, Mr. Frodo, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come when the sun shines and it'll shine out the clearer. Beloved, for us living in the 21st century and sin-cursed bodies and relationships in the world around us, a new day is coming and what we're experiencing today in our personal lives and the culture around us that, that's growing more and more evil each day is nothing but a passing shadow. The darkness of our lives, the darkness of our world will pass. 
And King Jesus will come. And King Jesus will reign. And will rule with justice and equity and kindness. And all wrongs will be made right. And then we will behold his glory forever. John 17, 24. Where Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, those whom you've given me, my desire is that they might be with me to behold my glory forever. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. We get the end story. Saul didn't know the end story. David didn't get the end story. He just knew a king was coming out of his loins. Solomon didn't get the end story. We, we have the privilege because of completed revelation. We know how it ends. Amen? And so we can live in confidence and victory. And we can walk by faith in strength provoking one another into love and good works and having a word to say to one another. It's where we live. Beloved, my plan this morning is I want to look at chapter 24 within, in, within 21, 22, 23, and 4, kind of where, pick up where Justin left last week. Um, and then we'll look at chapter 24, and then I want to show you an incredible connection with what we get and what we find in chapter 24. So Samuel ends with this perplexing story. Hopefully you've read it or you have read it before. Um, David takes a census in 24. Chronologically speaking, it's, it, it, it's earlier in his life. But before we get through to chapter 24, there's two things I want to remind you of. Now, if, if in this whole sermon, you need to really hang with me. You need to hang with me right here, okay? <clears throat> two things I want to remind you. Number one, Remember Justin last week talked about 21, 22, 23, and 24 being chiastically arranged? All that word means is that there are bookends, all right? Think bookends. If you have a library and you have bookends, all right, you have, you have this bookend, you have that bookend, and there's something in between, okay? And so as we look at these bookends, all right, we're going to start from the outside and we're going to work our way in. So hang with me. Chapters 21, 1 through 14 presents a national disaster. And this is the bookend right here. This is chapter 21, and it's national disaster. It's famine. It's because Saul has sinned. It parallels with chapter 24, the chapter we're in today. David sins, and there's pestilence. Okay? 70,000 people die. People die under Saul. People die under David. And the stark contrast is back in 1 Samuel, they wanted a king like all the other nations. And God says, okay, Nathan, they can have a king, but let him know that he's going to take, he's going to take, and, and it's not going to end well. And so these two narratives, all right, 21 and 24, all right, heighten the awareness of, wow, we should have stuck with God. <laughs> Kings fail. Okay, so there's, there's the outer perimeter. Next, all right, we have the bookends of David's mighty warriors. It comes in 21, 15 through 17, or through 22, and over here, 23, 8 through 39. And the, the mighty warriors are here. What, what's the purpose of the mighty warriors? Well, the mighty warriors were given amongst other soldiers to protect David, to protect Israel, and the messianic line, and the, 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 the king that's going to come out of David's loins. So the mighty warriors are given, the battle-ready warriors are given to protect it's not fighting battles. They're there to protect. And so you've got, you've got, you've got the framework here in here of, 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 of national disaster. And then we come in a little closer. We've got the mighty kings. And that focuses on what Justin focused on last week. We have these two poems. Beautiful poems. All right? And 21, the first one, the long one, 1 through 51 all right, focuses on God's sovereign, omnipotent, delivering power. That's why David said, he's my rock and he's my deliverer. The God is my rock. I take refuge. He's my shield. He's my salvation. He's my deliverance. And so chapter 22 is designed to think about God's glorious, magnanimous power and, and, and ability to deliver. Then it slides into 23, seven verses. And the focus that Justice said last week is the Davidic, the Davidic covenant. From 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see what's going on? Right here, 
22 and 20. This is the, this is the, the epicenter of a theological earthquake that sends powerful truth tremors all the way to the 21st century. God is strong and he's powerful and he will keep his, company, his covenant and will accomplish what he said he will do out of David's body. A king will come and establish on the throne forever. King is coming. Better than Saul, better than David, better than King Solomon. And so, beloved, for us, we long for his coming. We walk by faith because of the coming. We speak truth to one another because of the coveting, because of, the, of, of him coming. We, we share Christ because he's coming. We pray for his coming. We center our life and the church life around the coming because God wants us to be a 21st century expression of a biblical New Testament church. So that's the first thing to keep in mind, these two poems right here, okay? Secondly, keep in mind that when we come to 2 Samuel 24, it continues, it, it doesn't stop there, it continues through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, right? The story, this is progressive revelation, and we're going to see some of that in a significant way this morning. But in 1 Kings 1 through 8, which follows 2 Samuel 24, Solomon builds a temple, but before you build a temple, you've got to have real estate. 2 Samuel 24 shows us how King Solomon got the real estate to build the temple. Now, that's exceedingly important. So, remember those two points, okay? So now, let's go over to chapter 24. Let's look at this. We'll walk through it. Let's see what God has for us this morning. And so the, the, the chapter opens up. Now again, the anger was hot against Israel. Again. Someone told me after the first service, Jim, the other time that that phrase is used, I think he said over, I think he said, um, was it 1 Samuel 16 when Uzzah, he, he touched the ark and he was struck dead and the anger of the Lord was hot against him. And so we're not sure what the sin is. It could, we're not sure. But God is hot again. His anger is burning. And so the text says, you look at the text, which it now, here comes the weirdness, all right? And he, now my, I have Nazbi, it incited David against him to say, go number Israel and Judah. So God is angry at Judah, and out of that, God, or it, all right, incited David to take an illegal census, forbidden to do unless God commands you to take a census. And yet, if you know your Bibles, in 1 Corinthians, you can put a little note out the side of that verse, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 21 says that, that, that Satan, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, the liberals... The theological liberals say, ah, contradiction in the Bible. It's not true. So what, what do we do with that? Who did it? Did God incite David to take a census or did Satan? And the answer is yes, both. You see, it's important to understand, beloved, that Satan, though he's the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians chapter 2, all right, he is not an independent agent apart from God's sovereign kingship. Never forget that. Satan is a servant of God. Satan is being used to do God's bidding. God whistles and Satan comes running. And so he's under God's complete control and therefore he's an agent of God, although an agent of disaster and confusion and calamity and death and destruction and judgment. And the parallel passage is found in, in Job. Remember Job? And we, we shift to this heavenly scene and... Satan, God asked Satan, where have you been going? Where have you been? He says, I've been going to and fro. And, and if you look at the text closely, God taps on Satan's shoulder and says, have you considered my servant, Bob Thurlow? Have you considered my servant, Blair Labig? God starts the whole ball rolling. Now, is God, does God command sin? Does God, is he the author of sin? 
So if we're going to take 2 Samuel 24, 1, and even the Job passage, we have to bring another passage in and never forget Pastor James in 1, 13. says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay? And then James goes on to explain where the temptation actually comes from. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It's right here. It's right here. So when you're solicited to do evil and disobey the commands of God, you can't blame Satan. You can't, it, it's your own evil desire. And I think that helps us keep in perspective what's going on here. God never will command or will anyone to sin. He does not tempt us to sin. There's absolutely nothing in God's nature that would make him tend to do that which is wrong or sinful. And it follows then, therefore, that God would not tempt any person to sin. So we come to 24.1, and David evidently has sufficiently sinned enough to the, uh, to the point where God gives Satan permission to tempt David to conduct an illegal census. And Satan, knowing, David, knowing David's heart, knowing his, his failures with pride and arrogance and self-importance and self-centeredness, uses David's own fleshly inclinations, James 1.13, right, to do what is evil in God's sight. And David's sin took place when he was dragged away by his own evil desires and enticed. So the husband looks to the wife and says, Honey, I could be godly if you wouldn't treat me that way. That's where we want to go. No. All your wife is doing is exposing what's already in your heart. Professor, I, I wouldn't be angry or upset if you'd give me a B instead of a C. I wouldn't be angry towards you. No, that C just exposes what's already in your heart. And so David takes this illegal census. He, he might be worried about insurrection. I mean, he's dealt with Absalom and Sheba, and they wanted to take over and he had to deal with that whole thing. It could be he's gotten word that other nations are wanting to come in and therefore, you know, and to make war and battle against them. And I got to count my numbers. I got to make sure I, I've, got to, I've got to uh, uh, have enough guys to defend the property, the real estate that God has given me. And so he tells Joab in, in, in verse 9, in verse 3, he says, okay, Joab, I want you to go take a census. Joab, Joab gets it. I mean, he's shady, but he gets it. And he, he says, and look at verse 3, he says, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of the Lord my king still see. He says, May God increase tenfold the people here in Israel. He's buttering him up because he comes back and says, But why does my Lord the king delight in such a thing and taking an illegal census? Joab gets it. In verse 4, David pulls a power play, and he says, no, I'm king, you go do what, you, what I want you to do. And so Joab does, and so he goes all the way up to Dan, present-day Lebanon, and he begins counting all the way down to Beersheba, which is the furthest point in the, in the south, and what we would say is from coast to coast, from New York to L.A. And so there's huge census is taken, and it takes nine months and 20 days, almost 20, almost 10 months, and the count is 1.3 million, but 800,000 of those are battle-hardened men who are ready to go, David. Remember, God's angry with Israel. And then we come to verses 10 through 17, which is God's judgment. And look at verse 10. Just look at verse 10. Look what David does. Look at that. I mean, he's, he's been arrogant to Joab, and he's self-centered, and he's full of himself, pulls a power play. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then we come to verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Ten months have gone by, mind you. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. 
And it didn't take a prophet to rebuke David. God opened David's eyes to his own sinfulness. And David's heart softened, and he confesses it to the Lord. You know, it reminds me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the communion passage. He says, look, he said, if you judge yourself rightly, the Lord will not judge you. That's the first level of church discipline, by the way. You judge yourself. The second level is when Blair's doing something, and I go to him and say, brother, you're in sin. I can, he's, my, he's my guy. He fixes my back. And he snubs his nose at me and says, no way, I don't care. Then I bring another person who knows about it, and that doesn't suffice, and then we take it to the church. David's dealing with himself. He's judging himself. There's a softness here. And what's interesting, he says, because I've acted foolishly. That word fool, foolishly, there's five words for fool. This one is kassel. It's a, it's a word that means dull or stupid. But the idea behind kassel is this. Here's Jim, my arms are crossed, my mind's made up. And then here's somebody here, maybe my wife, and she is trying to convince me and using logic and using the word of God and whatever to, to, for me to change my thinking. And there I stand like this, and I'm saying, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care. That's Cassell. David said, I was the fool. And so he's conscience stricken. It took 10 months, but I don't fault David because it's taken me sometimes a long time to repent from some stuff. Joab tried to speak to him about it, but he didn't get very far with it. David says, I don't care what you say. I don't care what, you, what you're saying. I want you to go take a census. And I find it intriguing that, that um, it didn't take a prophet for David to repent, to confess and repent. He's softening up in his heart at this point. And he goes in and out, just like you and I do, right? We're hard-hearted at times. We're soft at times. That, that's where we live. But he does. He, he recognizes sin, takes ownership of his sin, and he confesses it. May God give us grace to have soft hearts. Remember, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the what? The proud. And so in 11 through 17, we see the judgment of God. God speaks to, in verse 12 and 13, he speaks to Gad the prophet. Now, a prophet does come to him, but it's not to rebuke him, but he comes to Gad the prophet and, and telling him, Gad, go tell David. Okay, I'm going to give him an option. Door one, door two, door number three. There's going to be three judgments that he can pick from. And now, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know anywhere else in Scripture where this takes place, where God gives someone a choice to choose their judgment. All right, it's kind of unique here. Judgment number one, door number one is seven years of famine to come upon the land of Israel, seven years, and then it goes to months, all right? Flee for three months while your enemies pursue you, and then it goes to days, or you could have three days of pestilence. And so, David, you can choose years, you can choose months, or you can choose days. Tough choice. And look at verse 14. David said to Gad, he said, Gad, I'm in great distress that word distress, it's the idea of stress that's jazzed up. It's, it's stress that's jalapenoed. The walls are, literally, the walls are closing in. He can't think about this. He can't think through this. He doesn't know the best thing to do. But all he says is, well, therefore, let, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. If he chooses seven years of famine, then he knows he has to trust neighboring nations to supply for his millions of people within his country, and he knows the elderly and the children will suffer and die. If he chooses to flee from his enemies, <laughs> I'm going to trust the Canaanites to treat her people well. I'm not going to trust the Canaanites or the Jebusites or the Parasites or the Crickites. I'm not going to trust any of them. 
And so what does he do? He says, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall into your lap of mercy. Verse 14. Because he knows that he can trust his God to do whatever is right. I can't trust man. I can't trust my neighbors. I don't want to fall into their hands. The hands that I want to fall into is the God of mercy. And so he leaves it up to God to choose. And what does God choose in verses 16 through 17? He sends a pestilence. We got a plague. <laughs> we don't know what it was. We, we do know what a little virus can do, right? A little virus can just create havoc. But the end result, the end result is 70,000 men are dead from Dan to, be to Beersheba, from coast to coast. From New York to L.A., 70,000. Now, these probably, I would say these men were probably the men that David was, was trusting in, these, these valiant men. So God took a, you know, he took sort of like a Gideon. He went from, what, 30,000 down to, to 300. And um, here he's, he's going from 1.3 million, and he takes a certain percentage out. Could be that. We don't know. And then it says in verse 16, and the angel stretched out... Mark that you need to start this in your Bible, okay? Because we're going to come back to this. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, that's that's a key phrase. All right, hang on to it. The Lord was soft. The Lord relented from his calamity, and he said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, "It is enough. Now stay your hand." And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the the Jebusite. Now we bring in First Chronicles twenty one. And so we get a little different picture. Dave, David has the ability to see the angel of the Lord. And First Chronicles 21 says he's standing between heaven and earth. So he's just kind of in the air, hovering and floating and doing his thing. But he's got the sword is drawn, all right? And he stretches out his hand and he's, he wants to destroy, or literally the Hebrew word, I want to slay Jerusalem. God says, intervenes. No, enough is enough. And God softens and God's merciful. And then in verse 17, it says, God evidently gave David the ability to see the angel, and, and he'd been killing 70,000 people as he entered Jerusalem, prepared to kill even more victims. And verse 17 says he confesses his sin again. Remember the bracketing I talked about? What's interesting, if you look at verses 1 and verse 9, it's bracketed by Israel and Judah as a unit of thought. 10 through 17, if you look at verse 10, David's confessing sin. 17, David's confessing sin. It's bracketed again. And then if you look at verse 18 through 25, 18, the altar of the Lord. Verse 25, the altar of the Lord. I mean, it's going on all, the all over the place. But in 17, he confesses his sin, and from his perspective, the men being killed are sheep, metaphorically speaking. But remember, God's angry with Israel. He he's hot. He's hot. But we do see a softness. We see David's softness, and it invokes God's softness. God gives grace to the humble doesn't oppose the proud right and so we see the softness of David and we see the softness of God let me let me just make a little point here I, I don't know where you're at in your walk with Christ marriage is hard being single is hard we live in in sin cursed bodies and sin cursed relationships and sin cursed world let me just say God will always 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 grant mercy to the one who free falls into his lap pleading for grace and mercy always he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness may God help us to live there amen okay 18 through 25 Gad then came the same day to David and he said okay David go up and or he tells he tells um, Gad to tell David, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And so the prophet Gad tells David, go buy a threshing floor of Aruna, and there I want you to build the altar. This is where David met the angel of the Lord, 
verse 16. It's where God relented from the plague before it came upon Jerusalem, verse 16. Now God, at the same place, wants David to meet him there for worship and build an altar so that you can worship me. It's an act of repentance. You've confessed in 10 and 17, but now I want the fruit of repentance, and the fruit of repentance, you want, I want you to obey me, David. And so David obeys. Now understand a threshing floor, and there's even theological significance here. God, God separating the you know, separating the goats from the sheep, and but a threshing floor was a huge, large stab. You know, think of this being a, a, a huge slab of stone, and they would put their grain, their wheat, on this huge slab of stone, and then they would have a, a, a sled, and it would be weighed down, and they would just run it back and forth over the wheat. And around a kernel of wheat, you have what's called chaff, 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 and they would run it back and forth over it, and it would separate. The chaff and the wheat would separate, but it's laying on the ground. And so then as the Mediterranean winds would come off the, uh, uh, would come off the sea from the Mediterranean in the afternoon, they would take a winnowing fork or a threshing fork, and then they would take it, and they would scoop it, and they would throw it into the air. The wind would carry the chaff away, and the grain would fall. And they would do it over and over again, and then finally they would, they would harvest it. And God said, David, I want you to go buy the, I want you to go buy this property, this real estate. And so Aruna in 18 through 21 sees David coming, and he goes to him and he bows down and he pays respect to him. And David says in 21, he says, I want to buy, I want to buy your land. I want to buy the threshing floor. In 22 through 24, Aruna comes back and he says, look, he says, I appreciate that, but I'm gonna just give it to you. I'll give you the land, I'll give you the burnt offering, I'll give you the wood, I'm gonna give it all to you. And David comes back and, and he says, look, he says, I appreciate that, but um, um, it wouldn't be a gift, it wouldn't be a sacrifice to the Lord if it didn't cost me anything. He's not looking for the cheapest way to, to please God. And so in verse, in, 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 in verse 24, he pays Aruna 50 shekels. And then verse 25, look at verse 25. We'll end on it. And David built an altar there, and he offered burnt offerings, which was to atone for sin. He understands the 70,000 men who died, and the, their blood was spilled. He, he, they did not atone. They did not appease the anger of God. And so it had to be, a, it had to be an appointed uh, sacrifice. All right, and so he brought burnt offerings, and the peace offering was the idea of fellowship after the burnt offerings were, were sacrificed. And thus the Lord was moved by entreaty for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. That's the story. And Justin said, Jim, would you finish? Would you preach 24? Good night. Would you call this a happily ever after ending? You know, we, we rejoice in that, in, 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 in that David comes to his senses without being rebuked by a prophet. I, I think that's a good thing. All right? Um, I, I, I think the plague is over. I think that's a good thing. I mean, that, that, there's a taste of a happily ever after story here. But if you pull back and look at the big picture, 70,000 men are dead. 70,000 widows are left weeping and mourning. And desolation describes their life because now they're dealing with financial issues when their husband was their main source of economic support. And if each one of these men had three or four children, we're looking at from 210 to 280,000 children that are without a father. Not a happily ever after story. Especially coming off 22 and 23 and the greatness of God's sovereign, omnipotent, delivering salvation power. And then the 23 is the Davidic king. You know, that's the way to end the book. You don't end the book on 24. Unless you're God. <laughs> Unless you're God. So where's the gospel in all this? Okay, let's, let's look for the gospel. And, and to do that, look at, look at verse 16. All right, look at verse 16. There's a little phrase there, start, box it, note it, do something. Um, the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. All right, and I've already depicted that, hovering between earth and, 
in, in heaven. And I mean, in, in, I mean, he's got the sword drawn and he's getting ready to slay Jerusalem. And I remember the first time I read this as I was getting ready to preach, I've heard this phrase somewhere. And then it dawned on me. You know where the phrase is? Genesis 22.10, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to destroy his son, to slay his son. Same Hebrew construction. No other place. Same Hebrew construction right there. 24.16, 22.10. And God had told Abraham, Take your son, your only son, foreshadowing the only begotten son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And it was there that Abraham put Isaac on the altar, and he's probably in his 20s or 30s because Abraham was 100 when he was born, and so Abraham's probably 120 to 130, somewhere in there. I mean, Isaac wasn't five or six years old because he's carrying the, the wood, and he, he's carrying the wood and the burnt he's carrying all of it. He's probably, at least he's a teenager. Interesting. I, I, I think, a, I think a, an 18-year-old teenager can take out a 120-year-old man. And Isaac willingly allows his daddy to bind him. He crawls up on that altar. What a picture. In the Hebrew language, it's very clear. Abraham's got that knife, and in his mind, with the verb tense, he's already done it. And right at the last moment, God says, Whoa! There's a ram over here. And God intervenes. And so when we compare that story of Genesis 22.10 to 24.16, the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it. God stops the angel of the Lord from wielding a sword, and God says, Enough! God intervenes! Same Hebrew construction. And so to the Hebrew listening who didn't own a Bible, but had to listen auditorily from the rabbi as he's teaching this story, they would, just like that, pick up on, on Genesis 22. And so, in verse 16, the author of 2 Samuel 24 wants us to think Mount Moriah, wants us to think Abraham, Isaac, sacrifice, God stopped it. Okay, hang on to that. Now, when it comes to the purchase of the threshing floor of Aruna in 18 through 25, this is where the story becomes really intriguing. In and of itself, it's just David buying land. But it has huge theological significance. And in order to show you this, I have to import, all right, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Now listen to this, okay? Listen to this. If you're getting sleepy, you can stand up if you want. Just hang on, here we go. Then Solomon, and he's just reiterating history. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's 1 Kings chapters 1 through 8, okay? On Mount Moriah, Genesis 22 where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan the Jebusite is the same person as Aruna in 2 Samuel 24. Same person, but the author of, 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 of Chronicles links the land that David bought to the temple that Solomon built back to Genesis 22, verse 10, Mount Moriah. This is incredible. Now watch what's happening. So we're reading, we're reading progressive revelation. So we come up to Genesis 22, verse 10, and we see Mount Moriah, and we see Abraham, and we see Isaac, and we see Isaac's getting ready to plunge the knife, and God says, no, I'm intervening. Here's a sacrifice. And then we're reading more, and we're reading more, and we come to 2 Samuel 24, and there's the angel of the Lord, and he stretched out his hand. He's getting ready to slay Jerusalem. And God said, no, stop, is enough. And then we move into 1 Kings chapter 1 through 8. And it's there, David takes the real estate from 24, and, or, or Solomon, and he builds this temple. And the temple is a visible representation of God coming and dwelling with man. And if we go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it says this, upon the completion of the temple, fire descended from heaven 
and burnt up the burnt offering. This is the big party that David threw at the completion. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The presence of God entered the holy of holies, the Shekinah glory. God is dwelling with Israel. Six hundred years later, six hundred years later, Nebuchadnezzar enters the land, and before he destroys the temple, which he does, Ezekiel gives us a little commentary. Ezekiel chapter ten, very distressing, very sad. And then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. Here, the glory of the Lord filled it. And then before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Solomon's temple, the glory of God exits. So much sin, so much disobedience, so much this. I don't care. I don't care. We're going to sacrifice to idols. I don't care. We're going to have sexual orgies. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't want anybody to hold me accountable for it. So God leaves. And even though prophet after they would come back and they would build on top of Solomon's temple the presence of God the glory of God never returned until we get into the gospels remember John the little baby born to Mary John chapter 1 verse 1 and, 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 and um, in the beginning God was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go down, who's the Word? And you go down to verse 14. Verse 14, and what does it say? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling, that's the word tabernacle, made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His clad? Glory. The glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The glory of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who came not to inhabit a stone structure, but came to inhabit a body and he dwelt among us for 33 years. And then the last three years of his life, he demonstrated that he was the Messiah. The last three years, he offered a real, literal kingdom to Israel and he came to his own and, the own, and, and they did not receive him. They did not welcome him. Therefore, there was rejection and there was accusation and condemnation. And so in this place called Mount Moriah, the threshing floor of Aruna, where the temple was built, that same area, there's a little place called Golgotha. And Jesus Christ is put on the cross as a sacrifice. And the father did not intervene and say, enough! Because in the garden, Jesus said, I could bring 12 legions of, of angels if I wanted. And like Isaac, he very willingly allowed the father to put him on the cross. Man, this, is, this is some good stuff. And as I'm connecting this in my kitchen, you can understand as an ADHD type guy, I'm pacing in the kitchen and I'm talking this through out loud with God. Say, I see this and I see this and I see this and I see this. And I'd love to get into a sermon on the threshing floor. The glory of God willingly and obediently submitted to God's will and he became the sacrifice. And God poured out the, fure, the full cup of wrath and anger upon his son, and Jesus drank every drop of his fury, becoming a, a propitiatory sacrifice, appeasing God's anger by paying for the penalty of sin. Why? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, the sinlessness of God, the perfection of God through Christ Jesus. Three days, so he's put in a tomb. Three days later, he, he, he rose from the dead. And then he walked among them for 50 days. Over 500 witnesses saw him. And then in Acts chapter 2, what happens? He goes, he ascends back into heaven. 
you don't hear many messages on the ascension, but his ascension marked the beginning of his exaltation at the right hand of the, of the Father, a return to his former glory. Father, those whom you've given me, my desire that they might be with me so that they might behold my glory. He goes back to the place of glory. Glory goes back to glory. The ascension marked the beginning of his present ministries of being our high priest and preparing a place for us to live in the future. His ascension into heaven, he takes the role of our advocate interceding on our behalf as a shepherd and a king. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Because he knows Satan's desires to sift us as wheat, as he told Peter. Satan desires to sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith might be strong. And the ascension does one other thing. It postures, it positions Jesus to return as the king. You go over to Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. A little bit later, he says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King is coming. Fulfilling what Isaiah wrote in chapter 9, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty and God, and Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, second, or, uh, 22 and 23, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forward. And when he returns to set up his literal 1,000-year reign, you know where he reigns from? Mount Moriah, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Temple Mount, the place of Golgotha, Mount Olives, Zechariah chapter 14. Clem read that this morning. And so on the surface, 2 Samuel 24 is a story of tragedy, but we look deeper within and through progressive revelation. God is slowly unfolding his redemption story. All right, he, He's forwarding the story, securing a temple from which King Jesus will, will die, where he will die, and eventually he will return and reign, giving to us finally a happily ever after ending. Amen? So it's more than a story. 24 is more than a story of the sin of a nation and a king. It's more than a story of God's judgment. It's more than a story about confession and repentance. It's a story that moves the redemption story along and forces to see Jesus, not just as our Savior, but the king. And if he's indeed your king, we are his subjects. And what do subjects do before the king? As you desire... As you desire, I will obey. See, Saul didn't have, he didn't have access to how this thing is going to end, nor David, nor Solomon. But we do, because we have the completed written revelation of God right here. His private thoughts made public so that you and I now can read it. You know, this, this past Wednesday, I'm doing a Bible study online to a church in Nepal. <clears throat> they don't read and they don't have Bibles. <laughs> Amazing. Nine months out of the year, the pastors go into the forest to forage food for their families. I probably got 10 copies of this, of this book in my... So what do we do with 24? How do, what does it mean for us living in the 21st century? What does it mean for us who are single? What does it mean for us who are students? What does it mean for us who are married? Let me share three things and then we'll be done, okay? This is the application. Number one, I think, I think because of David, I think we need to ask God for grace to renounce sin while waiting for his second coming. Okay, if you're writing that down, ask God for grace. Plead with God for grace. God, 
I, I want to renounce sin. I don't want to walk in sin. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I want to mind my tongue. I don't want to be a discouragement. I, 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 you know, I, I want to care for people. I want to love you with my heart, and I want to love my neighbor as myself. So help me to, give me grace to renounce sin waiting for you. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared through Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior King Jesus and so Father I pray that you would give me grace give us grace to say no to sin. And when that solicitation comes into my life to, to, um, to uh, disregard my marital vows, God, give me the grace to say no. God, give me the grace to not even hang a shingle out to let people think that I'm interested in another woman or another man. God, I need that. God, in my singleness, grace me because my phone wants me, to, wants me to open it up. It's calling me. I can hear the whispers on my phone. I need grace. God, help me not to spank my kids out of anger. God, I'm so enamored by the toys of the world and we're in debt and I, I mismanage your money. God, I need grace to renounce this and live a self-controlled life while I wait for you. Number two, make the coming. Now, I think this is important because it, it, it's going to have an awkward feel to it because we're just not wired this way. Make the coming of Jesus Christ a part of your encouragement, comfort, language to one another. Okay, let me repeat that. Make the coming of Christ, he's coming, a part of your encouragement, comfort, language to one another. N not whether OSU is one yesterday. I don't even know if they played. Or the stock market, or Lord knows what, what we used. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend. He's coming from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, the coming of Christ, it's coming. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. So if you're at house church, comfort one another using the coming of Christ. You know, some of us guys are not hardwired. We're not, we, we encouraging people with the coming of Christ. It's hard enough to, to encourage people, but to now to use that Bible stuff, this is Paul. He says, he says, you know, as you talk to people and they walk in the, in, the, in, 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 in the heaviness of the life that they live in, there is comfort in the coming of Christ. And we have to appropriate that and bring, make it a part of our comfort encouragement language. Very important. And then lastly, I would say this, and with this I'll finish. Beloved, we walk by faith. And so this morning, we visibly declare the truth that King Jesus is coming by taking communion this morning. We walk by faith. And so we have the opportunity this morning to visibly declare the truth that, hey, Jesus is coming by taking communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in sin-cursed bodies. There's so much sin in our life. I'm just amazed that our salvation is secure. And there's no take-backs on justification. And you don't erase us from the Lamb's book of life. I'm, I'm utterly amazed at that because I know my heart and the darkness of my heart. Lord, I, I pray for myself. I, I want a soft heart. I fight that. I want a soft heart. And I know there's brothers and sisters here that want a soft heart. 
a heart of confession and a life of repentance. So Lord, give us grace to live there. Give us grace to be able to talk to one another in biblical language and terminology, providing comfort. Lord, you're coming. Your promise to David is true. There is one that, was, that, that is sitting on the throne of David. And though he's not, er, not, though he's not present earthly, Lord Jesus, you are sitting on the throne of heaven and you will come when your enemies are put under your footstool and it's just right around the corner. May we be caught obeying you. Father, you know how fickle our love is towards you. We are men and women made of straw. It's not that we need you, Lord Jesus. You are all that we have. And so we confess you as our Lord. We confess you as our Savior this morning. We confess you as our coming King. Help us to be good subjects, Jesus, please. And Jesus, it's in your name I come, not my name. My name means absolutely nothing. It carries no authority. But in your name, Lord Jesus, we come collectively as, as, a, as a covenant community. And it's in your name we ask this. Amen.